Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're continuing tonight in our series called Call the Midwife. We're thinking about, remembering, imagining Jesus's origin stories from all four of the Gospels. And tonight we're returning to the Gospel of Luke for more of Luke's telling of that story. You might remember that early in Luke we have Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. There's been no room for them in the end, in the inn, and so uh, Mary has given birth in a barn. And shepherds have received an announcement from angels, an invitation to come and see. And Mary has pondered everything in her heart. And then we come to the second half of Luke chapter 2 and this story, beginning in verse 21. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
And when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A sermon in which there will be more Latin than we are used to. You're welcome. I'm at a huge disadvantage when it comes to this story of the presentation of the infant Jesus in the Jerusalem temple because I'm not Jewish and the motivations of everyone in this story are the givens of their own religious heritage. The ritual circumcision of the newborn boy the new mother's sacrifices in the temple, the devout worshipers who have waited for Messiah's arrival all their long life. The resonance of these details is a borrowed familiarity for a Gentile Christian like me, and presumably for Luke as well, himself a grafted twig on Israel's covenantal tree. So I don't want to pretend to be an expert in the familial and religious traditions that inspire this scene. But Gentile Christians like us want to understand stories like these because they are the formative stories of Jesus' own growing up. Just like any of us whose families have told us stories about our own coming into the world, how we start in life matters for who we become. Whether you're born into every advantage or have to struggle against early setbacks, you are in some sense who you are because of how you began. Which means, in the case of baby Jesus, we're going to have to know a bit more about the Hebrew Bible book of Leviticus than we might like. You can hurl your curses at the screen if you need to. I can't see you snarling. But please grant me a page and a half's worth of conscientious background before I jump to the contemporary therefore that is waiting for us about 10 minutes from now. The way our ancestors in faith saw it, there exists a great ontological gulf between human beings and the deity of the universe. God is the source and creator and provider and judge and sovereign of everything that is. And you can capitalize all of those, source, creator, provider, judge, sovereign. And we are, humanity is, exactly, unequivocally, not so much any of those. To use religious categories, God is holy and we are mostly not so holy except for that divine capital S spirit that has blown into our own little s spirits so that there is a shimmering thin thread of connection between ourselves and our maker. And for our ancestors in faith, life as a human being was very much every day, all the time, about honoring that thread of connection about living life in a way that honored our tether to the God of the universe and in a way that might even shorten that tether by drawing us closer and closer to the heart of God 
every day. And by living life, I mean all of it, doing work, making love, eating food, making money, spending money, managing a family, tending to ourselves and our land and our livestock and each other, all of it. Every aspect of human life had the potential to bring an ordinary person nearer to the holiness of God or to widen the distance between our creator and ourselves. So our ancestors in faith designed a religious legal code to govern daily decision-making, to inform ethical and economic and relational choices so that everybody could, if they were conscientious and careful, approach God's holiness and enjoy God's presence, not in the next life, but right now, today, as they walked through this world God had made. But, and, it was also the case that some large part of being human is, well, it's inescapably material, if you will, except for that spark of divine spirit. We are simply mammals on one level, animals that fight for survival and strive to make more of ourselves. We are, at root, bodies made of mud, and our bodies, as such, do stuff that is, according to this way of thinking, way too physical to be spiritual. We are pulled into our own physicality in ways that can be distressing for the devout worshiper whose prime directive for the whole of their life is to be near to God's heart. Giving birth was like that, Leviticus says, in chapter 12, if you want to take a look, where instructions are given for the purification of a new mother 40 days after childbirth. Leviticus is not saying that there's anything wrong with sex or pregnancy or pushing a baby out of your private parts, and yet anyone who has experienced childbirth, just seen it up close even, even now, would have to agree that it's very, 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 very physical. I mean, at a certain point, the birthing mother stops speaking human language and starts making noises she's not made before or since. Every effluent her body has ever excreted comes out of her. As St. Augustine said, interfaces et urinum nesimer, which sounds kind of erudite in Latin, if I knew better Latin. But the reality it describes is decidedly primitive. St. Augustine said, we are born between shit and piss. And let us not forget the blood, St. Augustine. More blood, more bleeding for longer than I was prepared for when it happened to me in my new motherhood. We could speak also of the animalistic reality of breastfeeding a newborn, a creature who is all want all the time, its mouth sucking relentlessly even in its sleep, and the mother who for a time is little more than a milk machine. I confess that I took to mooing sardonically when my baby would wake up after just, you know, 90 minutes of milk drunk sleep, insistent on another hit now. <laughs> Never in my life have I felt more embodied. Okay, so 
for our ancestors in faith, anyone who had slipped a bit in their nearness to God's holiness, sometimes by their own sin, but often simply by being human, by suffering a disease, say, or burying their dead or having a baby, there were ways to make up the distance to return to the closeness with God desired by all. All you had to do was whatever the Levitical code prescribed. It was like God offering extra credit for everyone who needed a better grade on their exam. It did not erase the previous grade, but it added on enough points for you to pass the class. And I just want to say here, But if that seems weird and maybe even a little bit icky to your religious sensibilities because you have long ago given up the idea of God as a scorekeeper and cannot imagine being found further away from God because of anything you've done or anything that's been done to you, well, good for you. And in some sense, our work here is done. But if you have any access at all to Mary's experience of the last nine months and especially these last couple days, the intensity with which she has experienced her own embodiment, the pain and the strangeness of it all, the losses of privacy and control, the weird sensations and strange smells, the changes in her own skin's texture and coloration, the -the round-the-clock tending required for her own flesh and blood, as well as her baby's bodily well-being. Well, then maybe you can get in touch with what it might have felt like to have a simple set of instructions that would pull you away from the shit and the piss and the blood and the snot and the sweat and the milk and the tears, pull you back into your own quiet, pondering spirit, lead you to a remembrance of the spirit of God in you, draw you back to a sense of nearness to God's own heart, And maybe you can feel the gift of those two turtle doves that one day in the temple, a gift given but actually received as Mary felt her body reconnected to her spirit, celebrating both body and spirit in the presence of the priests and all her religious kin, Acknowledging the reality that she was indeed completely material, completely committed to the physical processes of life and birth and death, and at the same time, completely spiritual. Her body, a beautiful temple for God's own spirit, her whole human life committed to the pursuit of holiness. Maybe you can feel Mary's body and soul knit back together in the temple that day. Her dual life purposes as mother of Jesus and child of God, united by the ritual and the prayers of the people. There is some debate about the etymology of the word religion. It's Latin for sure, but we can't be certain if religio derives from lego, which means consider carefully, in which case the practice of religion is to re-lego, pay attention again, to reconcentrate one's mind on what's important and worthy of contemplation. 
Or maybe religion, religio, comes from ligare, which means to bind together like a ligament. In which case, religion would mean the retying together of what has become separated. I like them both. And since we don't actually know which one is more true, for today's homiletical plot, I'm going with the second one, that religion is the retying, the putting back together, the reunification of what ought not to have been separated. I like it for Mary, just under six weeks postnatal. And I like it for us who live every day of our lives in the materiality of this physical existence. I'm not suggesting that every day of your life or mine is as intense as giving birth, but I am quite sure that there are assaults on our nearness to God around every corner of this path we tread. We find ourselves pressed into our own physicality at every turn. Some of that physicality is just par for the course. I mean, We get older and heed complaints from joints and muscles that never spoke to us before. Also, we're living through a pandemic, all of us, aware that our own respiration and proximity are literally dangerous to our neighbors and theirs to us. I have, during this season, learned the smell of my very own breath. Have you? Under a mask? We have worried variously about whether we'll have enough work or any work at all for feeding and sheltering ourselves. Pandemic or no, we spend hours of every day wondering what we'll eat next and who will make it and whether it'll taste good and be good for our bodies. And we want sex or maybe just the tender touch of another human body, body to body, limbs entangled and embrace. We worry about how much we want that. We wonder about how to get it safely and humanely and healthily. We itch, we scratch, we pick, we crack. We are just very, very, very material, embodied, most all the time, trying to get these bodies to wherever we're supposed to be next, do whatever work we're asked to do with reasonable competence, and finish each day with some acceptable level of survival, maybe even flourishing. And it all feels very physical, very much of the time. Then once in a while, on Sundays for sure, and maybe other times, if you're lucky enough to be part of a G group or a G craft or a G anything that calls for the presence of your whole self, once in a while, we practice our religion, our re legare, our retying, the putting back together of ourselves, our bodies with our spirits, our physicality with our spirituality, our whole human selves created by God for the love of God called into close communion with our creator. Like Mary, I hope you can experience that call, not as a call away from the blood, sweat, and tears of your everyday life, but as a consecration of it, the making of something holy out of something mundane, the transformation of all that we are, into closeness with the one who made us all that we are.
At least, that's what I always imagine we're doing here together. We're continuing the practice of our ancestors in faith, minus the animal sacrifice, thanks be to God, because my job would be a whole lot different if we were still doing that. But in the practice of our religion, in gathering for worship on Sundays and singing songs and reading scripture and reciting prayers and practicing rituals old and new, we are remembering again the dual realities that we are tethered to our creator by a thin shimmering thread and that we are solidly mudbound, pulled to the earth by the gravity of being alive and that God is always beckoning, always inviting us, drawing us near to God's own heart, mud and all. That day in the temple, Mary and Joseph and their not-quite-six-week-old gave two turtle doves to the priest on duty, asking for prayers for her purification in the company of all their religious kin. And that's important, too, both in the story and in our lives, that religion is something we do together, that we are none of us alone in the fragmentation of ourselves. We are none of us alone in the reintegration of ourselves. We are none of us entirely responsible for our own re legare. There is a community for that. There are Simeons and Annas all around us coming alongside us, recognizing the significance of what has happened to us and through us, offering prayers of thanks on our behalf for what God has done for us. And we are all, think about it, potentially someone else's Simeon or Anna, attentive to the realities of other people's humanity, celebratory of the ways God is working in them. Look, I know I don't have to tell you. You are the diehards who showed up for worship on the Sunday after Christmas, traditionally one of the lowest attendance days on the Christian calendar, second only, of course, to the sad Sunday after Easter. But it is good for us to remember why we're here. Habit, I suspect, for most of us. But embedded in the habit, a hope. I'm hoping, a hope that here, in the presence of our religious kin, in the familiar practice of our religious observance, we can be put back together and transported to the very presence of very God. Luke will tell us later in his gospel that the adult Jesus had a habit of religious practice He was in the synagogue every Sabbath day where he read scripture and recited prayers and sang hymns, the integrating practices he inherited from his family and his community. He knew, as we do, that religion done badly is a dangerous bludgeon that imagines itself a kind of gatekeeper between people and God. But he knew, too, that religion well-practiced in a community of trust has every potential to bring us near to God's heart. 
I'm glad to do it with you, fam. Minus the turtle doves, of course. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.